0: Thank you for being a good sport, and jumping around this morning in that scripture reading. There was a method to the madness. We want you to get a feel for where we've been and where we're going uh, today as we continue to work our way through uh, this wonderful study in the book of Nehemiah. G. Campbell Morgan, British commentator and preacher, described... Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10 in this way. He said, in chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah, what you have is a convocation, the people gathering to hear the word of God read and explained. In chapter 9, they move from convocation to humiliation because after they hear the word of God being read and explained in humiliation... They begin to confess their sin. And then in chapter 10, where we're going to be this morning, they move from convocation and humiliation to what he called dedication. This morning, they are going to dedicate themselves to the Lord in writing as they ratify this sacred covenant with God. And so that's the story of these three chapters. He summarizes it in three words. It took me about five weeks to get through it. Don't you wish you had him as your preacher? <laughs> Derek Thomas, in his commentary on Nehemiah, says that repentance is turning from something to something. And in these chapters, the people of God in the Old Testament are turning from their old way of life, their sin. They haven't been following the Lord. They haven't been living life the way that He wanted them to. They've been, they're turning from that and they're turning to Him. And they do that this morning as they, they cut or they ratify this, this covenant in chapter 10. Now, I actually wrote a book. I've written one book in my life. It's called Pursuing Intimacy with God. I've given that book to several of you uh, during the time that I've been here. Many of you know that I, I wrote this thing, and Chris and I talked about it. And uh, one of the things we talked about, I brought some of these things with me from uh, Nebraska, and I've got uh, a box that I don't want to take back with me to Nebraska when I go. And so I'd like to get rid of these things. I'd like to give them away, or I'd like—I uh, I need to get rid of them. <laughs> Because people aren't buying them, okay? I'm not one of those prolific authors. But I thought I had something to say when I wrote it. And if you'd like a copy, I'll give you one. Or if you'd like a copy and you'd like to make a donation to our missions fund, uh, then you could make a donation uh, in memory of Krista. She read it, and uh, we were talking about that before she passed away. But in this book... uh, I tell the story that I've told many of you of uh, something that happened in my life back in 2000. We were in uh, London, and I took the train with my dad down to uh, John Wesley's uh, house. And we walked into his prayer room. And you've heard me tell this story before. Warren Weersby tells it in his book. And I just want to read his experience, and then I want to tell you what mine was like He said, One of the most moving experiences of my life was when I stepped into John Wesley's bedroom in his London home, into a little adjacent prayer room. And outside the house was the traffic noise of City Road, but inside that prayer chamber was the holy hush of God. Its only furnishings were a walnut table, which holds a Greek New Testament, and a candlestick, and a small stool and chair. And when he was in London, Wesley would often enter that room early each morning to read God's Word and pray. The guide in Wesley's home told me as we walked into the room, Wearsby says, this little room was the powerhouse of Methodism. Well, I had a similar experience as I walked into that room. The walnut table was there, the Bible, but there was also the words of this covenant And I read the words of this covenant, and I went downstairs, and I asked them if I could get a copy, and I brought it back to the United States with me. And we used to give this to people in my church in Nebraska many times at the beginning of a new year, because Wesley used this covenant many times for a covenant renewal service in Methodism in England. And he writes about it, and many times there was spiritual renewal or spiritual awakening and God stirred in the hearts of the people. The words of the covenant are on the spring. And I want you to read them along with me. You don't have to read it out loud as I read it to you. I'm no longer my own, but I'm yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you, or let me be laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven, amen. And so many times they would use this as a prayer and a tool to give themselves to the Lord in a new and a fresh way and God would do a work in their lives at the beginning of a new year. Now what we've been looking at is the Jewish New Year and the people ratify a covenant today. It's a little different than the words in this covenant that I read for you, but they give themselves to God in a new way and God uses this as a turning point in their heart and their life. Dr. Campbell, not Gene Campbell Morgan, but Dr. Donald J. Campbell, who was a professor and went on to be the president of, of Dallas Seminary, in his commentary on Nehemiah Man in Charge, says that when he was a young professor, his, the head of his school would often send a memo to the different teachers, and he would say, don't say it, write it. And that's exactly what they do in this, this chapter, this, this passage of Scripture. The people of God don't just say it, but they put it in writing. And what we have here at the beginning of this chapter is a list of 82 names. And I didn't ask Cliff to read it. There's a reason he skipped ahead of, to verse 28. What you have at the front end of this chapter is a list of 82 different names. And you can read them if you want to. You have a list of 21 priests and 17 Levites and 44 different leaders who sign their name to this covenant. They don't just say it, they write it. And there's something very powerful about writing it down. Making a commitment to the Lord, not just in your heart or with your words, but signing your name to it. And if you journal, you know what I'm talking about. And you put it down on paper, and it holds you accountable. And so that's what they're doing here as they they begin this experience, this, this dedication of themselves to the Lord. Now, I want you to see that there are four parts to this covenant in this chapter, this agreement that they enter into in writing with God. And the first thing that you're going to see is that they make a pledge they pledge themselves in a new way to obey God's word. And so that's the overarching part of this agreement that they enter into in this, this covenant on this occasion. Look at verse 29, which Cliff read for us. The Bible says, and the rest of the people, that is all of the people that were gathered there, all of the people that weren't part of the 82 that signed it, And actually, there were 83 because Nehemiah put his signature on this too. The rest of the people and all of these now join their brothers and the nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God. Given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all of the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord." I think what we have here is really a covenant renewal, because back in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, the children of Israel, the Jewish people, enter into a covenant with the Lord their God on the plains of Moab. And now years later, curse or blessing, they enter into this agreement again with the Word of God and what Moses gave them back in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's all about obedience. Obedience is one of the evidences that we love the Lord our God. You've got your Bible with you today, and I hope you do. I hope you don't come in here on Sundays without a Bible or without some means of getting the Scripture. Turn to John chapter 14, verses 21 and 23. John 14, verses 21 and 23. It's not just about hearing the Word of God. It's not just about coming to church on Sundays and listening to some guy that's about five foot whatever. Yes, I'm over five feet, okay? It's not just about coming and listening to whoever read and preach the Word of God. It's about doing the Word of God. It's about obeying the Word of God. It's about putting the Word of God into practice. Obedience is the doorway to renewed intimacy, intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ and with with God the Father. Listen to what Jesus says here in these verses. "'Whoever has my commands,' And obeys them. This is the New Testament now, not the Old Testament. It's not Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 29. Now it's Jesus, John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love him. And I will manifest myself, I will show myself. To him, One of the keys to God manifesting himself to you, making himself known to you, is obedience, putting his commands into practice. Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and I will come to him. Look at the end of verse 23. I will come to him. And I will and we will make our home with him. This is a picture of, of, of intimus, intimate communion with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ with us. But obedience is the doorway to intimacy. It's the key to spiritual vitality, renewal in the Christian life. It doesn't do any good to come and sit and soak or sleep or whatever, whatever you do on Sundays if you don't walk out of here and do something with what you hear. And so this is what they're doing on this occasion. They're pledging themselves. Look at verse 29 again in Nehemiah 10. They're entering into this sacred agreement, this covenant with God that they will, in a new way, in a fresh way, in a deeper way, obey the commands of God. They're going to put into practice what they've been hearing. Samuel Schultz, Old Testament professor at Wheaton College, where I attended years ago, made this observation. He said that Deuteronomy in the Old Testament is like the Gospel of John in the New Testament. If you really understand God's covenant with his people, it's a lot like the Gospel of John because he's entering into this agreement with his people, and it's it's not their obedience which, which, which saved them. Christianity is a relationship. It's not a set of rules and regulations we follow for just the sake of following a set of rules. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is a relationship. But once we're in that relationship as God's covenant people, and the Jewish people were his covenant people, once we're in that relationship, he gives us commands to follow for our well-being and good. It's not the commands that save us, but he gives them to us for our well-being. He's the one that made us. He's the one that knows how we function best. And if we'll follow the recipe book, It will follow the book and live it out. It's for our good. And it will lead to spiritual vitality in our relationship with him. And so there's a reason they're doing this on this occasion. Now, I'm gonna hit the pause button for just a moment. And if you're following along in your notes, I'm on page two. And I wanna make a couple of observations. One of the things that concerns me and this isn't in the text, but I think it's a, an application, a possible application from what we're studying today. One of the things that concerns me about the modern worship movement is the emphasis on feeling and experience. We live in a very digital and existential age. And if we're not careful, I think we run into the, the possibility, the danger of sending a subtle message that we, that, that we don't genuinely worship God unless we feel God. Now, don't get me wrong. I love emotion. And I love to come into church on Sundays. And you've seen me up here sometimes. I'll get tearful. I'll get emotional sometimes. And I love to get emotional when I sing, because when I, when I feel it, it's like, wow, God is here. God is close to me. And I love emotion. I, I love it when God gives me emotion. But there's a subtle danger, I think, in our modern culture of equating feeling and emotion with intimacy with God. And somehow we walk out, and if we felt it, then, man, I really worship him, worship him today. God was here. God met us. And if I didn't feel it, and if I didn't experience anything, and if I didn't have any feeling that went with it, then somehow I didn't connect with God. But I don't think that's biblical. And it's something that concerns me about the modern worship movement because we live in a very existential, experiential age, and we're looking for emotion. We're looking for experience. We're looking for feeling. And if somehow if I don't have it, then, then, then God isn't there. But if, if I understand Nehemiah 10 accurately, and if I understand John 14 accurately, the acid test in the Christian life is not feeling an emotion. It's obedience. It's obedience that's the doorway to intimacy and growth and vitality in our relationship with the Lord. And so I think it's very important to understand that as we study the Word of God. God's presence and renewing work in our lives, the evidence of that is life change, a changed life putting into practice the Word of God as we study it together. Now, I'm going to really start to meddle now. I've got a slide up here that I want you to read on the screen. I think that three of the great satanic deceptions of our modern age... Three great lies are that we can measure our spiritual vitality and maturity by emotion, experience, or feeling. Now, again, don't get me wrong. When the choir was up here singing, um, what was it again? Not to God be the glory. What did you call it? Like proclaim the glory of God. I had Steve Green in my head because I remember listening to him sing that song. And when he sings that song, I could hear his voice and Candy almost sounded like a female uh, Steve Green this morning. the, The hair on the back of my neck would stand up, you know, and I'd get emotional. So there's nothing wrong with emotion or feeling. And God gives us emotions, and he gives us feelings. But it's not the acid test. It's not the way we measure spiritual vitality and maturity. Now, another danger, I think, is measuring our spiritual vitality and maturity by information. And I've already preached that this morning, but I'm going to repeat myself because I want you to get the point. If you're measuring your spiritual maturity this morning or the level of your spiritual vitality and how alive you are in Christ by how much you know, then you're deceiving yourself because it's not about what you know. You can memorize the whole Bible, but if you don't do anything with it, then you've missed the point. That's another subtle deception or lie I think, in our culture today. And we've got a lot of people who are not measuring themselves by, by how much feeling and emotion they have, but we have other people that are falling off the other end of the spectrum and they're measuring their spiritual maturity or their spiritual vitality by how much they know. And the reality is, God doesn't care how much you know. What He does care about is how, what you do with what you know. The application of the Word of God in our lives. And then the third lie that I think some Christians have bought into is what I would call commotion. And that's just my way of describing Christian busyness, being spiritually active for no real reason. And I think that a lot of times we measure our spirituality by how busy we are. And so if I'm running from sunup to sundown and I'm involved with this or I'm, I'm involved with this program or doing this for, for the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm spiritual. But that's another way that we can deceive ourselves because God doesn't necessarily care how active you are. What He cares about is why you're active, why you're serving Him. And so... I just want to share that this morning as we continue to work our way through uh, these chapters in the book of Nehemiah. And don't just take my word for this. Check me out. Go back to the book and see if you think this jives with the Word of God. Now, the second part of this covenant that they commit themselves to has to do with marriage. The first was with obedience. The second was obedience in the realm of marriage. And so they make a promise now in verse 30 that they're going to renew the observance of God's will for marriage. Notice what they say in verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. You see, one of the things that was happening in the nation of Israel at this time is they were intermarrying with pagan And those pagan people who did not have their faith were leading them down a road away from God, and they were no longer practicing their faith. So notice that obedience begins at home, and obedience begins with the home, and obedience begins in the home, in the marriage relationship. And so now they're going to apply this very specifically to marriage and to, the, and, and to uh, the home. James Garfield said that the sanctity of marriage and the family relation make the cornerstone of our American society and civilization. Who you marry and why you marry them and who you choose to live the rest of your life with is the second most important decision that you'll ever make in your life. The most important decision is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's anybody in here this morning that you haven't given your life to him, if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk to you after this service. It's the most important decision you make. But the second most important decision you make is who you marry. And these people were marrying the wrong people. They, were, they weren't following the Lord's commands. And we've given you a lot of Scripture here on page 3 in your notes where the Old Testament talks about not intermarrying with people that don't have your faith. So Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7, Joshua 23, Judges chapter 3. And then you get to the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 says the same thing. You're not to be unequally yoked. It's very important that you, you marry someone who's a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in, in God the Father, the God of the Old Testament, then it was very important that they married someone that believed in God, and they weren't doing that. And if you read 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, and you see what happened in the life of Solomon, or if you read what happened in the book of, or pardon me, not the book, but in the life of Hezekiah or Josiah, they had a covenant renewal ceremony very much like this because foreign wives were leading people's hearts astray, and people were no longer following God. And so they renew themselves, they make a new promise to follow the Word of God in this area. A basic building block of a Christian home is marrying someone who believes like you do, who has a similar faith and wants to follow the Lord that you've chosen to follow. Now, notice the third part to this covenant. They make another promise here in verse 31 uh, to renew the observance of God's plan for the Sabbath. Verse 31 again, "'When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise "'or grain to sell on the Sabbath, "'we will not buy from them on the Sabbath "'or on any holy day. "'Every seventh year we will forego working the land "'and we will cancel all debts.'" Notice that as they're ratifying this agreement now, they renew their commitment as God's people to, reserve, to, to observe God's principle of the Sabbath. And on page three of your notes, we've given you a number of passages of Scripture. I hope you'll go take these home and read them this afternoon and see what God had to say about Sabbath in the Old Testament. Now, you may be scratching your head saying, Now, wait a minute, Randy. We're not living in the Old Testament. I mean, what do you you mean talking about the Sabbath right now this morning? I mean, we're New Testament believers. What does the Sabbath have to do with me? Well, what does it have to do with you and me? Well, I think it has a lot to do with you and me because God gave us the Sabbath, the principle of Sabbath, for a reason. Now, don't misunderstand me. Turn to uh, Mark chapter 2 for just a moment in the New Testament. Mark chapter 2. And notice what Jesus said at the end of Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Remember the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, were criticizing him. Because they didn't feel like he was observing the Sabbath. And this is what Jesus said. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, they'd gotten it twisted all around. They were legalistic, and they they had this long list of minutiae and all this stuff that you had to do in order to observe this day. And if you didn't do it, then you weren't religious. And they missed the point. And the point was, Jesus said, the Sabbath wasn't made for man. Pardon me. The Sabbath, I want to get this right. I don't, to, I don't want to mislead you here. He said to them, Sabbath was made for man. Pardon me. I want to get this right. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They got the cart before the horse. They got it all messed up. But the important thing that I want you to see here is that the Sabbath was made for man. Underline that. The Sabbath was made for man. So the Son of Man, he said, is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I'm going to have to confess here, I, I think I've blown this in my own life many times. There is a principle of Sabbath rest that I think the Lord still wants us to observe. He gave us this principle of Sabbath for a reason. And if you're following in the notes, I want to just talk about them, three of them right now. One of those is for rest in the midst of all of our activity. Turn to Exodus chapter 31 verse 17 for just a moment. Exodus chapter 31 verse 17. And I'm not talking about legalism now, okay? And going going out of here and becoming a Pharisee today and becoming in bondage to the Sabbath. But I think there's a principle here that in our modern age, we've lost sight of. Exodus chapter 31, verse 17. And I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm not a, a Sabbatarian in that way, but I want you to, to listen to this. Exodus 31, verse 17, it says, it's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth. He ties this right back to creation. In six days, he made the, the Lord made the heaven and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now, this is a mystery to me because I don't think God really needs to be refreshed. God is God. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Uh, go talk to Doug Burden. He'll give you the meaning of this verse after, after the service today. But, but the, the point here is God is our model for the Sabbath. God in creation is our model. And it says that he rested... And he was refreshed. And this word refreshing means to take a a breath, to catch your breath. It's like a a breath of fresh air moving into a room so you're renewed. We need rest. And one of the problems in our modern age is we're so busy we never rest anymore. We're going 24-7, including Sunday and Saturday and 1 a.m. in the morning too. We never rest. And we need to rest. And when we rest, it renews us spiritually and emotionally and physically. And we desperately, we're a people that desperately need renewal. Gordon MacDonald, in his his old book, Ordering Your Private World, made this observation. He said, I get the feeling we're a tired generation. Evidence of that fatigue abounds in in multiple articles about health problems related to overwork and exhaustion. Workaholism is a modern word. What's strange about our general fatigue in our society today as a people is the fact that we're a leisure oriented society. We we exhaust ourselves recreating. We've got all of this leisure, it's an entire industry. And then we have to come back from vacation in order to rest. We're so exhausted. We probably have more time for leisure than we've ever had before. So why is there so much exhaustion and fatigue today? Is it real? Is it imagined? Or is the contemporary form of exhaustion evidence that we no longer understand genuine rest? And I would say that it's probably we don't understand what God really intended for this. There is a principle of Sabbath that God wants us to observe in our lives. And one of the reasons is he knows we need rest. Now, there's a second reason for Sabbath, and that's reverence. Notice the little phrase, or any holy day in this verse of Scripture. Sabbath is not just a time for rest and refreshing and refocusing. It's also a time for remembering what God did for us on the cross in and through Christ. Deuteronomy 5.15 ties Sabbath back to, I think, God's redemption of his people from Egypt. When we observe Sabbath, we remember and we reverence God. There's very little of reverencing of God many times that goes on in our culture on Sundays anymore because we're just so busy charging here and going there. That's another reason he gives us this principle. And when we, we pause to not only rest but reverence God, it renews us. It's reinvigorating. It brings spiritual, renewed spiritual life into our heart and life. And then the third reason I think he gives us this principle is for restoration. Notice the little phrase, every seventh year. Every seventh year, we will forgo working the land and we will cancel all debts. Now, this is an amazing principle. Can you imagine this happening with your local banker? Every seventh year, your banker walks up to you and forgives your mortgage note or he forgives the money that you borrowed from the bank. But that's the principle here. Every seventh year, they were to allow the, let, let their ground be fallow. They were to, to let it lie dormant so that the poor, the, those that were needy, could, could take from the land. It, it's all about restoration. The restoration of the land. Can you imagine if all of the farmers in America would do this, if every seven years they would let their land be dormant? But, you know, I think God knew something that we don't know. It's good for land for it to be dormant. In fact, modern-day farmers have discovered that. You know, they they cycle it through. Back in Nebraska, they'd grow soybeans instead of corn, and and they'd let it lay dormant sometimes because it, it put nutrients back into the soil. It's all about restoration. And I think Sabbath is a symbol of restoration. When we observe God's Sabbath principle, whether it's every seventh year or every seventh day, but there's a rhythm to life when we're observing the Sabbath in our lives. We experience rest. We pause to to reverence God and we experience restoration, renewal in our lives, something that we desperately need. And then the fourth piece to this covenant, and we'll wrap it up. Is they made a pledge of renewed obedience to God's plan for giving. Look at verses 32, 34, 35, and 37. We're on page 4 of the notes now. And notice that they talk about the temple taxes and the wood offerings, which is uh, a reference back to Leviticus chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. They make a pledge to make sure that the fire keeps burning on that brazen altar. Supplying it with wood for, for for the for the wood offerings and and they make a pledge to, to to give the temple tax and the first fruits of the fruit offerings which was just an offering which symbolized that the Lord was the Lord of provision the Lord of the harvest the first fruits belong to God and without getting to all the details here in the last seven verses of this chapter we don't have time this morning the bottom line is. That when we give our lives in a new way to the Lord, then we make a pledge that He's got, He owns all of us. That covenant we we recited at the beginning of this time this morning. That He has our marriage life, our home life. He has our time. That's Sabbath. He has our time. The way we use our time, we want it to honor Him. And then. He has our pocketbook, too. There were some people back in, in um, I think it was the Middle Ages, when they were baptized, they would, they would go under the water and they would hold their sword up out of the water as they were being immersed because they still wanted to go to war. There are a lot of people today that when they're baptized, they're baptized, but they hold their pocketbook or their checkbook out of the water. <laughs> If God owns all of you, then God owns all of you. God has it all. He has my time, that Sabbath. He has my money. That's giving to him, giving to God's work. We don't give to the temple anymore. Look at the last verse of Scripture and we won't neglect the house of God. Well, we don't have an Old Testament temple right now. We're the temple of God. We're the people of God. But we should be giving to God's work, to God's kingdom, investing in it, if God really owns us. Ron Blue said, stewardship is the use of God-given resources for the accomplishment of God-given goals. He calls on us to be good stewards. And so we're going to end it here this morning. We're out of time. We're going to sing number 358, is it? 358. This is a hymn of surrender. And as you sing the words of this hymn this morning, maybe the Lord is calling you to come forward because that's a way to put it in writing. You know, that's the value of coming forward. When you come forward, people see it. And you're, they know you're serious. It's a way of putting it in writing. Maybe that's what God wants you to do this morning. Come forward as just an expression of the words of this hymn. And in a public way, you're going to say today, Lord, I want you to have all of me. I want you to have me. That means my marriage. That means my time. That means my money. I don't want to just hear it. I want to do it. Please take me, Lord. You can have all of me. And if if that's what it means for you this morning, then I would invite you to come forward. Be obedient. Come forward. Now, if you can do that standing where you are, then please stand where you are. But... Let's sing the words of this hymn now as we mean it. And in a new way on this Palm Sunday, could we just give our lives to the Lord in a new way to follow his word.